This morning, uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 39. I want to read a portion of the story of the life of Joseph. It's quite an extraordinary story, common to most of us, I think. And um, probably no other story singularly except about the life of Christ and his ministry is, is so well recorded. There is so much, probably nearly 10 chapters in the book of Genesis devoted to the, um, the or more than 10 chapters, devoted to the life of Joseph and how God worked through him. And so what I want to do is I want to read just a few verses in chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of Egypt of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him in his sight, Potiphar's, and he made him overseer of his house and he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he, felt, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was a handsome man in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And, of course, the story is extraordinary. From start to finish, you have this 17-year-old boy, approximately, when he is sent out by his father to check on his brothers. And he's had to do this more than one time. So he seemed to be like a little reporter. And he would go out and take scope of what his brothers were doing and report back to his fathers. He had many dreams as a young child, and he would share them with his brothers and his fathers, and um, they weren't well received, and there was a bitterness that started to develop and became quite extreme between Joseph and his brothers. And there was some jealousy on their part because he was the favored son of Joseph and Rachel. And so upon one of these ventures to see how his brothers were doing and report back to his father, you know the story, his brothers um, saw him coming and plotted against him to kill him and, and then maybe like let's just throw him in a pit and then, the, then uh, some Ishmaelite uh, travelers, merchants, traders came by and, and essentially sold him to the Ishmaelites. They in turn took him to Egypt and sold him uh, and he was purchased by the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, and he served as a slave in Potiphar's house. So, and then we have the story I read to you. 
And the story goes on, and it's quite extraordinary. You can get to the part where he's the second in command of all Egypt, from being thrown into a pit, sold as a slave, enduring so much, second in command over all of the country of Egypt. And it's an amazing story. And then to read about his being reunited with his brothers and how extraordinary that story is. And some people interpret that and they, they look about the life of Joseph and they, as they witness the plan for God in his life and say, wow, Joseph, that was just amazing to see him come so far from this place to this place and being second in the command of all of Egypt. That's got to be the most extraordinary thing. Look how successful and, and prosperous God had made him and so on. But I want to tell you that's not the story. That's not the story at all. The story unfolds through all of that to be sure. But there's a story here about Joseph trusting in God in an amazing way. And this morning I want to, I want to use this passage from God's Word. And I want to talk about what does trusting God look like? What does trusting God look like through God's eyes, through His Word? We've gathered information along the way as we've been believers, um, some longer than others, about what people and what's been heard and what's been written about what it means to trust God. We have this idea in our head, what it means to trust in God. And then I read this passage of Scripture in the book of Matthew, and I have concern. I have a great concern. And I want to read uh, uh, just a few verses in Matthew 7. You can just listen. It's at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he comes to the end, and he says in verse 21 of chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you workers of iniquity. And when I read that, I remember... Uh, a long time ago, I was just so much in the book of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you know, it was just like one of those things. And then later, in, I would contemplate those words and think about those words as a child of God, as a believer. And I thought, wow, he is virtually telling people that in the last days, there's going to be some that come up to me and they're going to be very accustomed to me, so they think and very familiar with me, so they think. They call me Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. Have we not done this and this and this and done many mighty miracles, many mighty works before you? And Jesus says, I don't know you. And I thought, wow. You know, we live in an age where we have to be constantly on guard that we don't, our faith doesn't divert toward legalism where we're, we're simply trying to put together a string of righteous acts and righteous deeds and, and gaining the favor of God. It's like Satan's great enemy, the greatest tool against believers is to think you and I have to accumulate a, a certain amount of righteous deeds and a certain amount of work so that we can gain favor with God. This is not what the Bible says at all. It's not what it's teaching. So it's like paramount to me and my heart that we want to know and we need to know what does trusting God 
really look like because we do not want to hear that pronouncement of judgment. I don't know you. I'm not familiar with you. You and I don't commune together. We don't talk together. You don't pray to me. My spirit is not in your heart. And that's an alarming thing. So I thought about and looked through the scriptures and I, and I, I just, my heart was drawn to the story of Joseph. It's so extraordinary. And uh, so I have to kind of be brief because we can't cover all that's amazing in this. But I want to look at three things. I want to first look at Joseph in his life that he, I want to look at his repentance. Okay? And then secondly, I want to look at the cross he carried. And then third, I want to look at his love. The love he had for God, the love God had for him. When we read about this and we think about this, Joseph's life, we become witnesses in, in some measure of God's plan for his life. We see what God's doing and how things unfold and from one uh, event to another event to another event to another event. And maybe you can look back or think back to the first time you read through the book of Genesis and the first time you read this story. You, you're, you're, you just seem to ride the emotions of Joseph's life up and down and up and down and you're fearful for him and you ache for him and you're, you're happy for him and it's just, it's all over the place for Joseph and you think, wow, this is amazing. We can't expect that if we model our life after Joseph's, you know, look at his life and try to model it after him, that we're going to become second in power over all Egypt or for any country that matter. It's not about that. That's not what trusting God's all about, that we can volley ambitiously for some position in, in life or in a profession or in church even or anything like that. It's not about that. And hopefully in this story we can see what it's about. My goal this morning is to share some insight into what we can expect and what we can learn about Joseph's life and how he came to know God and trust God and be faithful to God. Many respond to this story when they think about Joseph and being wowed at, at all the things that happened from the time he was thrown in the pit. You remember the story. He pleaded with his brothers. What's going on? What's happening here? He didn't expect this. And he gets thrown in this pit and he probably hears his brothers talking about what to do with him and they took his robe of many colors and and, and all of this, and he's just like so unsure and so frightened about what's going on. And looking at that and considering that, but rather we want to look and focus on how, what God did. What was God doing in his life? How he grew and trusted God. How he walked faithfully. How he loved God and how God loved him. Joseph's life demonstrates something for us. Joseph's life demonstrates that faith is the business of life, is the business of life. I don't believe for one minute Joseph had some kind of a conversion or salvation experience in the bottom of the pit. I don't think that's where it happened. The Bible doesn't declare exactly when Joseph came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior, to know God and trust in Him. He heard certainly many, many things from his father, Jacob, and listening to him and understanding how Jacob's relationship with God doesn't say that. We begin to see things happen in Joseph's life that tells us clearly that he was about the business of faith and trusting God. He demonstrates this. In Hebrews, we are told that without faith, we cannot. It is impossible. Without faith, is it impossible to please God? It's impossible to have a relationship with Him without faith. 
without trusting in him, without depending on him. This is not the casual retreat that we're speaking of here that modern Christendom seems to embrace. That we're all good about Christianity and all good about serving God and all good about all the things we do in the church and serving God. And, and, and when there's tragedy strikes, when, when tr fiery trials seem to consume us, we retreat to God and we seek God and ask Him to deliver us I'm not saying those are not certainly prayers that are wrong to have. I've had many of those myself. But it's not a retreat. It's a part of life. And so let's look and see what's different about this. One of the things that I found astonishing, and that it, the, mainly because it happened so early in this story, and that's in, in um, verse 2 of 39, Genesis 39. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. And if you stop right there and you don't read anything, it might fit in with the, with the common prosperity message that seems to run rampant in the United States, and I suppose everywhere in the world has some measure of this itself. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. And some people, if you gave them a little uh, pop quiz and said, how is it that Joseph was a successful man? They, said, well, they would say, haven't you read the story? He becomes second in all of Egypt. The Pharaoh puts him in the highest position in the land, just beneath his own authority. That's how he became a successful man. And actually, that has nothing to do with his success. Nothing to do with his success. If you asked Joseph about it, he wouldn't even, it wouldn't even occur to him to probably even speak of the subject. That wasn't what was implied here in verse number 2. And if you know the story well, this happens before a great tragedy in Joseph's life. So, the first thing we want to consider is his repentance. What puts him in line to deal with tragedy? What puts him in line to deal with, the, with his brothers uh, um, putting him off, selling him, reporting to his father, taking his coat and soiling it with, with animal's blood and giving it to his father and said, we found this. We found this this." Is this, your, is this Joseph's jacket? Well, weren't they playing the smart ones? Is this Joseph's jacket, the one you made for him that, you know, and secretly in their mind that we were all jealous about because we didn't have one, he didn't make us one? Is this it's covered in blood? It looks as if some wild animal took him and devoured him. Joseph's character was one of faith. It stems from his, undoubtedly from the teaching of his father. If I read to you just three verses back in verse 35, it says, God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you. Now, if you go back into this story, because of some things that happened with the brother's sister Diana and, and the event of all of that, some new people came into the family of Jacob. It had grown a little bit, not with his own family, but some people came into him, women and children, into their midst. Anyway, he says this, God says to Jacob, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. So that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress. 
and has been with me wherever I have gone. I, I feel it without a doubt, this is the message that was continually shared over and over with Joseph and with the brothers the family. Put, the, put away these gods. This is where we stand. This is where our heart is. We, we stand with, we follow the lead of the, the God who is with me wherever I have gone. So I feel like this is what Joseph grew up with. When he repented, we don't know. But repentance itself is not a single day event. It's not a single minute event. It's kind of an ongoing work in the life of believers. So, obedience was in the heart of Joseph from early age. I'm not saying he wasn't carried away with a little pride, aren't we all, from time to time? Felt pretty good about putting on the coat of many colors and being special to his father above everyone else. Probably that kind of carried him away sometimes. Um, being the one that went out to bring a report back, we might call that a tattletale, I don't know what you might say. But uh, we're not saying Joseph was perfect, but he was raised, and he understood, and he knew the God of his father, Jacob. He heard this, these stories and, and how Jacob repeated these and taught him well. What does it mean then? What is, what is this repentance that, that we see evidenced in the life of Joseph? I think this is it. Repentance is, well, what we commonly understand, it's a 180 degree turn. It's you going this way and realizing this isn't the right way. I don't like, you, you see what's ahead, you see what's going on, you see where your life's heading, to. this isn't right. And you're, you're, the burden works in your heart, the Spirit of God works in your heart, and you turn from this way and you go this way. It's much like the same thing that um, Joshua said of his family, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. That's repentance. It's a complete turning away from the way of the world and what's been taught and what's tradition, what's practice, what's, what's um, the ambition of the world and turning to God and saying, I want to follow God. I want to, I, the, the success I want in my life is to be with God and to follow Him and to let Him lead me. That's a repentance and that's what we see showing up in the life of Joseph. What was it in his life that enabled this to be the case? What was it in, in the life of Joseph that, that shows this kind of relationship? One of the things that stood out to me most, I, re, I, I remember to this day reading the story for the first time, and, and you remember when we, as we read it in 39, he, he's talking about how God has blessed him in this Egyptian's household, Potiphar. He's a slave there, and he's working for Potiphar, and God blesses him and gives him favor over house and over field. Potiphar trusts him in everything. And I remember when I was reading down here, and it says, and he's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin? And you know how your mind fills in blanks ahead of time sometimes when you're reading? It kind of happened to me when I was reading the story the first time. And I thought he was going to say, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? And do this evil thing in the presence of Potiphar? Didn't say it at all, does he? He says, how can I do this thing against God? How can I do this thing against God? This is where his heart is. This is where his success is. He was a successful man because he walked with God. He, he communed with God. He fellowshiped with God all of his life. 
I'm sure, just like for you and just like for me, there was all kinds of setbacks, many things he struggled with. Look what happened to him. She catches him one day in the house alone. She embraces him. He pulls himself away, leaves his outer garment in her hand and flees. She makes up a story and witnesses against him and said, he tried to rape me, he told Potiphar. What happened? Joseph, the Bible records that he said nothing. He did not make his defense. He lived his life the way God would have him to live it. And he honored God and served God. And when this terrible thing happened, I was like angry when I read this the first time. I said, Joseph, speak up. Say something. Get you a lawyer or something, you know. No, he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything at all. He ends up going to prison. He worked so hard. He did this, this, this. We read these stories and think, man, he was making ground. You know, he was this poor little boy, teenager, just thrown away disregarded forever. Next thing you know, he, he works himself hard and he's a slave in the house of Potiphar, but he works his way up. He gains the respect. He has some integrity and then loses it all. And wow, you know, some people speak out against God when those kinds of things happened. It wasn't, it wasn't what, the way it happened at all. He's in prison. Do you know what the scripture records about Joseph's time in prison? But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of prison. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him steadfast love. I wonder how many would-be believers say, where's the love in that? Where is the love in, in me being taken from a position of respect in the house of the captain of the guard and being put in prison? Not even... It's not on his heart. It's not on his mind. God loves him and he knows this. He has a relationship with God that is amazing. And this was his strength. It's a love story, y'all. That's what it is. Simply a love story between Joseph and God. When you're in love, things are different. Right? I read this quote, something from one of Charles Spurgeon's work. In remarking about this comment, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Obedience, he says, is much easier when we know who God is. When I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought, him, I thought sin to be a trifle thing. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought of God was when I thought that God was hard. Have you ever thought that? I have. Wow. Have I been on my knees and said, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? I didn't want this to be the way my life would be. You think God is hard. Find out sinning's not so hard. Who cares? He doesn't love me anyway. But I found God, Spurgeon says, to be so kind and so good and so overflowing with compassion. I smote myself on the breast. Whoops. Sorry about that. To think that I could have ever rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good always. Sometimes we read the story of Joseph's life and we think, wow, Joseph is just like way too perfect, you know? That's why God gave him favor. He kept doing the right things all the time. 
Well, God saw that and said, wow, Joseph, I'm just going to, you're doing such a good job, I'm just going to keep doing blessings for you. Blessing, blessing, blessing. You know, if you live on that treadmill of performance all the time, then when something like um, somebody falsely accuses you and you find yourself in prison, you go, oh, what? that didn't get me anywhere. And so you become disappointed in God. That's why we know Joseph wasn't motivated by that. He was motivated by something else. It was a real repentance in his life. He, didn't, he said, I'm not going this way, I'm going this way. I've, this is my decision. Something that the Spirit of God enabled him to make within his heart. This is my decision. It doesn't matter. I'm going this way because this is the way where God is. And I want to follow him. And it doesn't matter to me. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. You've received it. It was a gift. It was put into your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. By whom you and I cry out, Abba, Father. So special work in the heart. And this is the way Joseph saw. This is what trusting God looks like. He's my Father. And I love Him. And I'm ready to go with Him wherever He takes me. I'm okay with that. Matter of fact, we learn in Joseph's life, he embraced that. What a joy it was for him. He's kind of crazy. A joy? Doesn't the Bible teach us to count it all joy when you fall into different divers' uh, trials and tribulations and difficulties? Don't, doesn't it teach us to count it joy? I think sometimes we dismiss those things. We, we read them in God's Word, we just dismiss them. It just doesn't seem to fit right in my heart and with my life and my plan. That's the problem. It's my life, my heart, my plan. Instead of what God says. Remember somebody told me this, uh, shared an illustration with me one time. This pastor was preaching a message about evangelizing. And he was very passionate about it. And he was just, the whole message just, just was full of passion and urgency to, to get out there and share the gospel with those that are dying and have no hope. And in the congregation was a grandmother who brought her little grandson. And so after it was over, they were all milling around in the back of the church and and uh, the grandmother was talking with someone in the church and the little boy just tugging on her leg and being annoying and she kept putting him off so she could carry on this conversation. Finally she goes, what? And the little boy says, Grandma, we got to go out and tell people about Christ. The pastor said, it's urgent. And he, she goes, that's just, uh, don't worry about it. That's just what the preacher says. It's okay, just kind of put him off. And I'm telling you, maybe not so overtly, but it happens to us sometimes. We read God's message to us and we just put it off and think, I want to know what real trusting God looks like so I don't ever have to stand before God and hear, I don't know you. How much that would be, how much would that hurt? I don't know you. God is more interested in, in not the miracles that are performed and the prophecies that are made and the, the many mighty works. He's just interested in how, how often do you divert in your path to spend time with him. How often do you pull away and say, I need this? We, we're conditioned in this way to think, you know, if we can have a 10-minute um, uh, quiet time in the morning, you know, they used to have uh, devotionals that were like 30 minutes or an hour. And now I think they got them in like five minutes or a one-minute devotional, just read one minute, just one minute. You know, and we think, well, okay, that's good. Well, it's good to get that much in one minute. You know, we, that's not what God wants. He, he says, I, I, I want all of you. He says, I've loved you with everything I have. Everything I have, I've loved you. And you, to me, God would say, it's urgent to me to give my son to die on the cross for you because I desire your love. 
Does that even sound right? Does the Bible teach that or am I making this up? He loves us. He is jealous for us. He desires us in the most amazing way. We sang the song Cornerstone. I, I love this song. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. The, free, the, the sweetest moment in my life that the world would say, wow, I'm on the top of the world. Everything's going so well. This little frame in life. No, I don't trust that. Joseph didn't trust in the fact that he was so revered by Potiphar. He didn't trust that. He didn't trust in the fact that he was so revered by the keeper of the, of the prison, the jailer. He didn't, he didn't trust the fact that Pharaoh would count him so amazing to put him second in charge of all of Egypt. He trusted in God, and he rejoiced in that. Look at the details he went to when he saw his brothers for the first time, for after so many years. Look at all the, I don't know what was going on in his mind, how he thought about it. Good thing he could speak Egyptian and hide his Hebrew accent and hide everything about that as he watched them and, and worked it out. It wasn't, I heard one time a preacher preach and said, well, it took all this time for God to turn his heart around because of his bitterness. And I thought, no, your sermon's about bitterness, but this young man, this man wasn't bitter. He was looking away for, to show love to his brothers, looking for an opportunity. This is where his heart was. Because he never once blamed God for the disasters in his life, he never once blamed God for that. We have got to some point in life better today than tomorrow. We've got to learn to trust God because it's just glorious. I wonder, a thought crossed my mind when I was just looking at these notes this morning. I wondered about Jacob, his father, hearing from all the brothers as they returned from their trip out with the flocks. And they had the dirty soil, bloody coat. And, Jake, and Jacob was undone. I mean, he would go down to the grave in mourning, so destroyed in his heart. Did he live 13 years with this disaster? Sometimes we do. Sometimes something happens in our lives, something's happened in your life, and you live with that disaster. Could we just trust God that something amazing is happening? And that it's okay for God not to show us every single thing that happens. It's okay. It's okay to take God by the hand because he's taken you with the life of his son. And just trust him and say it's okay. That's point one. I'm going to run out of time. If that's okay, we'll just pull it together. Second point was his cross. You know, you hear... A lot about take up your cross. Christ's disciples would come to Jesus and he would say, take up your cross, follow me. What do you mean by that? Sometimes I like to just wonder what my cross was, you know, go around and find it somewhere, you know. I could have this vision in my head about Jesus carrying the cross up to Golgotha's hill and struggling underneath the weight of that. And I thought, I wonder what my cross is, you know. And then I realized my cross is, is before me every single minute of my life. Every single minute of my life, that's my cross. And I pick it up with joy. Jesus said uh, it was his joy to go to the cross. He said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. It's, it's going to be hard. It's the hardest thing that God would do, whatever that means. 
but it's my joy because I'm dying for people I love. I'm dying for my children. It was his cross. What's your cross? Joseph had his cross. He carried his cross every day. And what his cross was is that it's, it's, it's picking up the plan of God for his life and saying, this is what I want to live. I don't even know what it is. I have no idea what tomorrow holds, but I'm carrying this cross, and I'm so thankful that God's going to lead me. It doesn't matter if my name is, is ridiculed. It doesn't matter what Potiphar and his household, the captain of the guard, and who knows how far that story went. It doesn't matter what they think. I have God in my life. It doesn't matter. He carried his cross. Too often, as believers, we're mistaken, and we're constantly trying to negotiate better circumstances in our life. God, let this, you know, Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. But what did he finish his prayer with? Nevertheless, your will, your will be done. That's what our prayers need to be. I'm not saying we don't pray about those unique events in our life that are, that are hard and troubling and tragic and oh, so much more than we seem to be able to bear. God will take care of us. I don't know if an angel went to Jacob and whispered in his ear and said, listen, something amazing is working and I can't tell you. I can't let you know about it, but something amazing. You're the worst tragedy of your life you're facing now. You've lost Joseph in a horrific way. Okay. Can you receive that from God? Because if we can't, we're still looking this way and saying it didn't happen the way I wanted it to. It didn't happen the way I worked for it to happen. I lived about 40-something years like that. 30-something, I was a believer. It's not a fun way to go. And the end of that road is a disaster. And then you turn this way and say, all along, you were there with me all along. You were the champion of my life. In 1 Peter we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. That's one of those verses we like to read past it. What does that even mean? It doesn't seem to fit. I don't like it. It's not what it says. Don't be surprised. They're going to happen. They're coming. You may find out about it in a minute. You may find about it in 30 minutes. But who do you trust? Who do you embrace? Who loves you? And says, don't worry. Don't fear about this. I need you to trust me. I want you to enjoy life now. And in the face of all of those things, I believe with all of my heart there was a smile on the face of Joseph in his heart because he had God. He knew that God loved him. I don't have much time to say, but I wanted to think about this because to put it in your mind, maybe that's just enough. But so many times we live our life and we have what-ifs in our life. You know, we have entitlements in our life. You say, I'm not, I don't feel entitled. Yeah, yeah. We, we often do. We feel entitled until something's taken away and then we realize we were. We felt entitled to it. Joseph didn't deal with those issues. Or if he did, if the enemy pricked his heart with him and threw a fiery dart, his faith was there to shield it. I'm not receiving this. My God is king. 
my God is Lord and my God is sovereign. You see, the God that Joseph believed was the sovereign God. It would be good for all of us to go home and look it up in a dictionary. What does the word sovereign mean? We cast it around in church all too often. What does it mean to live or to believe and live for a sovereign God? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. God only masters some things in my life and he leaves me on my own and to deal with certain things. That's not God. He's sovereign. Some things happen according to what God's plan, but other things happen that God didn't plan on happening. That's not sovereign. God is sovereign over my life. He's sovereign over your life. He's sovereign over all of your providences, all of the events of your life. He's sovereign over them. He promises to take tragedy of the worst kind and make the most, the most extraordinary beauty out of it. And didn't he prove it on the cross? You know, we all look at tragedies in our own lives and think, well, this has been the worst I've ever dealt with. Probably I'll never have to deal with this again. Maybe, I, who knows. But we, all, we often think that the greatest crisis in all the world was Jesus on the cross. When the, when the Father in heaven turned his back on Christ on the cross and Jesus looks and sees this separation happening and said, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why are you leaving? That's a crisis. The worst that the world has ever known, and it turned into the greatest beauty that the world has ever known. It was God's display of love. Last thing. Love was the reason that was able to hold Joseph together. That's all it was. He really loved God because he knew God loved him. You know, God is jealous for you. I don't know sometimes if we see that. Maybe sometimes we don't have enough examples in our life. I grew up, as maybe many of you did, my years growing up before I was a believer and for quite a while after I was a believer was all about conditional love. I had to, had to do certain things to prove my love for my father or to gain his love. It was always conditional. It's all I knew. And when you read this story, you read of God's love in the Bible, you realize it's not conditional at all. It's grace and mercy. God saying, I'm going to take responsibility. Not only will I die for you, but I'm going to put my spirit in your heart. And I'm going to write my law on your heart. It's there. Sometimes you think, is it in my heart too? Yeah, sometimes we just let the traditions of the world and, and, and traditions of churches sometimes come in there and write over those things and change it up a little bit and messes us up. Just read here if you're not sure. Understand what real trusting God looks like. And embrace it with everything that you have. Real quick, I remember a long time ago, I drove a school bus. Teachers in the U.S. would supplement our incomes that way. And uh, two or three years, I was in this one same neighborhood. And this boy would come out of his house. He never was at the bus stop on time. I always had to stop and wait. And he'd come out of the house. He's kind of a tall. He's, he's tall the whole time. He was just tall. And uh, he'd come out, and the kid's teased him because his hair was like everywhere, bedhead. We, they called him bedhead. I called him bedhead. <laughs> his hair was everywhere, you know, and it's, you know, it's like, take a little bitch, you know, clean yourself up or something, wake up in the morning, and, you know. Anyway, year after two years of that, and well, one day I pulled up that bus stop, and he come out of his house, still he wasn't on time. Wow, was he dressed sharp. <laughs> I mean, wow, his hair was combed. I didn't hardly recognize him. I was like, wow, what happened here, you know? wasn't long afterwards because he went to the same school as I did and as I was teaching it. And he was in love. He was in love. Changed everything. 
changed everything. He wasn't even the same person anymore. Y'all, I know that's just a simple story on an earthbound level. But you're never going to be the same when you fall in love with Christ. He loves you. He's trying to work things in your life so that you don't trust the world. He is not going to give you favor so that you leave him, but he's going to work it till you come to him because he wants to love on you as any father does their child, and he wants to feel your embraces, you loving him. This is what it's all about. So don't be amazed. The Bible says in the world you'll have trouble. It's okay. My favorite words in this country. It's okay, no problem. You know, cab driver doesn't know where to get you. It's okay, no problem. I got enough gas, we'll drive all over Abu Dhabi. We'll find where you live. You know, no problem. In the world, you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious Father, thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. And Lord, does it teach us, and indeed we know it does, what trusting you really looks like. It's not about triumphs. It's not about the sweetest frame. But it's leaning on your name. It's trusting you and embracing you. And Father, we're about to, as a church family, a faith family, to partake of communion. Lord, let us enjoy this communion, perhaps on a new level, to realize as the bread is broken and the wine is sipped, Father, that this reminds us of your love in the most amazing way. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.